Please go ahead and have a seat. Jesus tells a story in Matthew chapter 18. It's about a king and two of his servants. The ruler, the king, the wealthy one, has entrusted one of the servants with a large sum of funds, and it hasn't gone well, and that servant has become deeply, deeply indebted. So much so that there's no way that it could be paid back in a hundred lifetimes, probably a thousand. And the reckoning has come, and so the ruler says, listen, pay up, buddy, and there's no funds to pay up that level of debt. It is this thick. It is heavy. It is burdensome. And so the ruler says, okay, being how you cannot pay, I will take whatever it is that I can get out of you. You are now going to be sold along with your family, and all of your possessions will be liquidated to pay back some of what you owe. And knowing that even at that level, it wouldn't even begin to touch the thickness, the weight of that debt. And the man, knowing that he's completely undone, goes to the master and he says, please, please forgive. Is there any way we can work this out? He doesn't want to see his wealth completely wiped out. He doesn't want to see himself and his family sold into slavery. And so he begs the mercy of the ruler. And the ruler grants it. He not only says, I will reduce the debt that you owe, that you could not pay in a hundred lifetimes, but I'll completely forgive it. It's gone. It's wiped away. And of course, the individual is incredibly happy about it. It's like, this is phenomenal. This is incredible. This is beyond my wildest dream. And on his way out, he noticed that one of his coworkers who was not a person of great importance compared to him or great resources compared to him, but it still had borrowed something, something equivalent to this. And so he grabs him by the neck and he says, you need to pay me. And if you don't pay me right now, I will have you thrown into prison. The master hearing about this, of course, is greatly displeased because he has forgiven this, and the man would not forgive this. He has wiped away this, and this is being held to account. And so Jesus does one thing that he does quite often. He takes a simple concept, and he adds depth to it. He takes a very common interaction, and he makes it so incredibly uncomfortable that no one could bear. In fact, his followers, even within their little group of 12, are struggling with working out this truth in their life because they're hanging out and they offend each other. They're hanging out and they do things that wrong each other and they want to know where is the line, how far is it? So, in your Bible study this week, you used the probate method. Oh, that's not my favorite P in the, uh, the grouping. In fact, uh, Don and I had some fun with that. It doesn't bring up really great uh, you know, images in my mind, but we use the space pets to actually work through God's word. And so we're going to do that. 
with one of the verses that uh, we looked at this week. And if you're not doing the 40 Days of Word, you can start now. It's always a good time to start spending daily time in God's Word. And if you've been doing it and you've kind of gotten slowed down and maybe a few days behind, it's okay. Um, just pick up where, where we're at and you can always come back to it. God's wanting to speak to you day by day by day. And so don't feel like this is some sort of grading thing that you're going to have. This is just your opportunity to meet with the Lord on a daily basis, hear from Him, allow Him to speak to you and change you in your life, even about really, really super uncomfortable things like forgiveness. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege of being able to be here today. Lord, thank you for the grace that we've been given in being led into your presence in worship. Lord, I do pray that having confessed these lyrics, Lord, that they would not just be melodies accompanied by words, but Lord, that they would be the confession of our heart and that they would ring true in the days to come, whether you remind us of bits and pieces of those songs or, or that we remember all of the words together, Lord, that we would confess these truths that we need to shout your praise even in the midst of the most difficult days, that, Father, that we need to confess by how we live that it's you and you alone that deserves all of our attention, all of our devotion. And, Father, that you would move us from where we're at to where we need to be step by step according to your patient and incredible mercy. We ask these things by the one that we know is your expression of mercy, Jesus Christ. Amen. Hope you brought your Bibles with you. And if you'll find Mark, the 11th chapter, that's where we're going to be today. We're going to read two verses, um, one of which may not be in your Bible. I'm just going to encourage you. No, I did not make up the other one. Uh, this is a great opportunity to just share a little bit of how the Bible is put together, uh, New Testament and Old Testament. There wasn't, you know, copy machines and all these things that we're very used to. They didn't collect information the way that we did. In fact, uh, to this day, large swaths of the population of the world are very oral. And they can pass down a story from generation to generation. It stays very, very accurate to the last generation. And so the scripture was formed you know, through that process. Now, during the time of Jesus, being writing things down was a common practice, and this is true. But in, in this particular passage, those stories that were collected about Jesus, the stories that were passed from place to place to place, this is what he taught, uh, began to insert verse 26, because we find it in another part of the gospel in, in Matthew. And uh, so... At some point, a little bit later than the earliest manuscripts that we're able to tell, verse 26 was, hey, this is in Matthew's account of the gospel, and this really fits in very well, and this is kind of incomplete thought, so they put it there. And so in some of your Bibles, since particularly if you have the New Living Translation, this verse is missing altogether, and there's a little footnote in the version I'm going to read to you today, which will be very, very similar to that. Uh, it's actually in brackets. It's, it's noted in there doesn't make any less God's word. It just means it's noting that it's not in the earliest copies that we have. The really cool thing about God's word has been preserved through the generations, and we don't have one original of any of it, not one. We have copies of copies of copies, and those copies agree with each other. And so this is actually a testimony of the great agreement that we have in those copies, because we can say, listen, this one's, 
We find it in Matthew, but we don't find it in the earliest of Marks. Somebody must have said, listen, this is in Matthew. We need to fit, you know, fill this in here because this is the exact same thing that Jesus is saying. And if you're wondering uh, what part of Matthew, it's in Matthew uh, chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, uh, which is the end of what we commonly refer to as the Lord's Prayer. So I'm going to read just uh, two verses to you. And again, it's going to be a little bit different than what we see on the screen. Um, and then one verse may not even be listed in your copy of God's Word. Jesus is speaking. He says, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. So that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. I'm going to read it one more time. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is also who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your transgressions. Now, I'm, I'm really big on context. I think that a lot of things get changed in how we understand them by context. And so I want to give you the context of this particular passage. This is weighty, heavy stuff. But it gets even weightier and heavier when you see it in the context of what has happened in the story as Mark presents it of what's going on in Jesus' life. Jesus has just come into Jerusalem. In fact, the first part of chapter 11, you might have something on in your Bible that's also not actually in the manuscripts. It's just like a summary of what's happening, and it might say triumphal entry, or Jesus enters in Jerusalem or, into Jerusalem or something like that. And it's this incredible, mind-blowing party that the people of Jerusalem finally welcome Jesus as their king. And so it's just this exuberant welcome of Jesus that he is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and they're shouting the hallelujahs. And, and it's just it's, it's, it's this powerful, incredible expression of expectation of the population that Jesus is going to be their king. This is really just hours before that very same population or portions thereof scream at the top of their lungs, not hallelujah, 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 but crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Okay? So this is part of that context. But it gets even a little bit more complex than that. Just a few verses down from there, Jesus goes and visits the place of worship. And he finds that there's not a whole lot of worship going on. And he revisits the place of worship and finds that there is a whole lot of commerce going on, that there are people that are making good money by being connected to Yahweh, the one that is supposed to be worshipped at that place, at the temple in Jerusalem. But what they're really there for is to make money. And so Jesus takes exception to that. And those of you that know your Bibles well, you know exactly what happened. What did he do? He turns the tables. He drives them out. It's, 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 you know, he doesn't go in there in great King James English and says, you with alleth are doingeth the wrongeth thingeth. You need to getteth out. No, he doesn't do that. He's furious. 
And his fury is so powerful that he's able to take what is a common practice every day and make it stop. And he says, this place is not a place to focus on commerce. This place is a place where I will call all nations to come and to speak to the one who created them. Okay? So, there's this great expression of exuberance that is going to be completely betrayed. Then there is this great emotional upheaval from Jesus and the upheaval of an entire system of this is the way we do it. And then a little weird story about a fig tree that's not bearing fruit and Jesus curses it. And then hours pass and they come back, they see the very tree and it's withered up it's it's dead and so there's a lot going on and then he gets to forgiveness the reason why i wanted to point out and this is part of even the story goes on but we're going to stop here just for the sake of you know this is enough context the reason why i want to point this out is because we tend to take the issue of forgiveness and separate it from real life we separate that Jesus speaking about this forgiveness is not teaching his disciples about something that they're going to need to do. It's something that he's actively doing right then and there. Because he knew when he was hearing, Hosanna, 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 blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah, our Savior has come. And this incredible exuberance of the people, he knew that they would be crying out for his public humiliating death. In just a few hours. And it was going to be a complete shift. He knew that. He saw how separate worship was from what it was supposed to be. And it angered him. He was emotionally invested in it. And oftentimes we think of forgiveness as something that we can detach from. And, and somehow, you know, somebody's forgiven if, if I can just detach from it. And he doesn't detach at all, does he? I mean, when you're throwing over people's shop fronts and you do it with such fury that they literally clear the place, that's some, that's some deep passion. And I don't know about you, I, I'm, I'm, I'm easy to forgive. But oftentimes what I do is just cut you off. So you're forgiven. I don't hold anything against you. You're just pretty much non-existent to me. Y'all be nice, but we're, we're now no longer connected at all. I'll get to more of that later on. Jesus is very emotionally connected. And then there's this thing about the, the fig tree, and I really don't have time to get into that. It's a whole message unto itself. I just didn't want y'all thinking he's a scaredy cat. He just skipped over that. No. I'm going to just tell you, I'm a scaredy cat. I'm skipping over that. No, it's, it's just, there's a lot more history that needs to go into. But you know, there's, there's not this sanitized picture of Jesus in this, in this passage. And I, I want you to see that. You know, he's, he's dealing with real life when he addresses this issue of forgiveness. And so 
using the space pets method, we're going to ask these questions and kind of go through together. Most of you have done this some this week, and some of the answers that we'll come to together this morning are exactly what you wrote down. And prayerfully, some will be things that you perhaps did not consider. I think it's really interesting, though, that to apply this particular acronym to this particular passage, it kind of ends with it backwards. Because the passage says, and whenever you stand praying or whenever you're talking to God, you forgive. If you have anything against anyone, you, you, you lay it down. And I just want, want you to, I want to give you some definition about forgiveness. It's, it is a uh, term that is used in banking. You know, we, we, we understand about debts. We're Americans. We know what debt is. Even if you have no debt, you know what it is. And if you're an American, you most likely have debt. So we understand that. And so what this idea is, is when we have a debt, there is, there is something that we owe someone. But when that debt is paid, it is forgiven. It is recognized you no longer owe me. Okay? It's an interesting concept, and I hope I don't get too kind of in the left field area here, but it's an interesting concept because I, I have, uh, I'm of the age that when I, when I print out my credit report, it's like 30 pages long. You know, so I have this long history of debts, and they've been paid off, but they're still there. There's a record of them, even though they are forgiven because they were repaid you following so oftentimes we have this idea of you know forgiveness is forgetting well there's still a record of things right there's still that interaction that's happened even if there's nothing owed there's still a marker on my credit report that at one point i owed for that i got a deal on a lawnmower in like 1991 or something like that it was like six months, same as cash. And I said, I'll keep my cash for six months. And, you know, it's a really nice lawnmower. It's my favorite lawnmower that I've ever had. My kids and I used that lawnmower. It was an awesome lawnmower. But that's still on my record. I paid that off in 1990 or 91, but it's still on my record. And so the idea of forgiveness and forgetting being linked inextricably, that's not the case. But what is the case is that debt is no longer there. So this is where the difficulty is. Really, it isn't in forgetting because that's not required in every time. Sometimes it is. You know, somebody says something nasty to you. You don't remember that nasty thing because you just constantly are refilling that debt. What it does say, what it does say is knowing that that thing has existed, you no longer owe me. And in our interaction with each other, then we actually remove that debt before it is paid. And that's what we don't like about it. We like somebody to pay back the debt, right? You know, you owe me. It's in movies, it's in books, it's in our conversations with other people. You know, we do nice things for other people, and so we actually can indebt other people without them even knowing. So, and then, then when the time comes, you know, I've done for you and you owe me. You're following. Okay, some of you are. That's good. I'm going to try to grab everybody, though, because it's really, really important. And this is the term that's used. It's, 
It's what do we owe to each other? And so Jesus says, whenever you stand praying, wipe out what other people owe you. Let's just be honest. That's zero fun. It is. Because sometimes people owe us because we have extended good things to them and we expect some sort of favor in return at some point later on. That's what I call positive owing. Then there's the negative owing to where somebody has done something that's hurt us, that has offended us, or maybe even destroyed part of our lives. just depends on what's happened. And we need to keep a hold of that. Because that defines our relationship with each other. You hurt me. You offended me. Or you destroyed part of my life. You owe me. And so, Jesus says, when we stand before God, we need to let those things go. We need to wipe out those debts. It's interesting that the first phrase doesn't mention anything about God's forgiveness of us. It just kind of assumes it. Because when we come to God, we come with this. And we stand before God with this. Every single one of us, you say, well, I'm a really good person. You know, I, really, I, I don't have all of that. Maybe have this much. Okay, I'll give you that much. I'm not going to argue with you about it. Maybe you are an extraordinary person. But I'm going to tell you, when you stand before God, your debt is bigger than what you can pay. Scripture is very clear about it from the Old Testament all the way through the New. That our relationship with God does not start off with us being on equal terms with him. The very fact that we can approach him is an act of an incredible grace. In fact, in the Old Testament, God establishes his holiness in such a way that it's geographical. And those that broke that geography, does anybody remember what happened to them? They died, that's right. Some of you really know your Bible well. They died. Why? Because they broke a rule? No, because they got too close to the absolutely holiness of God. The rule was there to protect them from becoming dead. You following? It wasn't there to, to you know, tempt them. It was there to protect them. And they, they violated that. And they got too close to God's holiness. And one group, God's holiness exploded. And they literally were picked up in bowls. They scooped them together because they were just piles of ashes. That's all that was left of them. Okay? So we forgot that. You know, we, we think that um, we take that, song, that line in the song that we just sang, you know, you didn't want heaven without us, and we make it about us and not about him. You know, we're just so special. We're so wonderful. We're so incredible. You know, and God's like, oh, geez, I just, you know, I can't deal with creation without having you. And so i got to do whatever it takes to get you here. No, not at all. But again, for another message. So when we stand praying, we need to forgive. And so in the space pets, you know, the first question is, is there a sin to confess? And I can honestly say, every time I talk before God, there's all sorts of sin to confess. You know, I was here during worship just confessing sins. I want to be ready to teach you um, because 
I know that every time I stand before God, whether it be in worship or in prayer or just standing like I'm standing right now, and God's here, that I am a man who's got this unpayable debt. And so I confess that I, I myself have an unpayable debt. That's where it starts. So is there a sin to confess? There's always a sin to confess. Because what sin is, is basically my choice to do what I want to do. Which I do a lot, what I want to do. How about you? Do you do a lot of what you want to do? And sometimes you don't even think about, well, is this God wants me to do it? You just do it because to even think about, is this what God will want me to do? It's kind of annoying. And you don't want to go there because it might not be. Sometimes it would be, but I just don't want to think about it because if it's not, then I'm going to have to change my behavior or I'm going to have to know that I'm sinning and I'd rather just sin and not think about it, right? That's the way we are. Like, I don't sin because I don't think about sinning. So I just kind of roll on and along. So is there any sin to confess? Yes. And of course, one of the sins that I have to confess is there's people in my life that owe me. Wow. But when I come to you, God, I can either come as the one who is so full of debt that I cannot repay and throw myself upon your mercy, or I can come to you as the one who has been been forgiven and is now being brought back up for judgment because I strangled somebody over a single penny. Y'all looking a little depressed, so I'm going to move on. Is there any promise to claim? There is two promises or one that's repeated, and that is how God responds to us. Because if we recognize that we're the individuals, no matter how good we are, but that we are in the individuals that has a debt that cannot be paid in a hundred lifetimes, maybe a thousand lifetimes, it just cannot be repaid, then we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we have great joy because God says, you owe me nothing. I've already paid it. That's where y'all say Amen. All right. See, I told you you're all depressed. You're like, that's a great promise. This is, this is an incredible truth. That when we go to God, it is not this, this thing of, you know, like, well, you owe me big time. You have screwed up your life. You screwed up the life of your wife, your kids, you know, your coworkers and all these things. And he would be completely right to say all of that. But in Jesus Christ, when we stand before God, we do not stand as ones who owe an unpayable debt. We stand as ones who have been completely, completely forgiven. That debt is removed on the cross. It is removed on the blood that was shed on the ground. It is removed in the death of Jesus. It is removed in the grave. It is removed and it has been replaced when we receive the forgiveness. God, when that debt is completely removed and the Holy Spirit is put in our life, that is completely gone. There you go. That's the promise to claim. And so when we stand before God, we can forgive those in our lives who have done us wrong, not to think, well, it's just this happy world, but I am completely free of a debt I can never repay. Or even get close to that. And I have to stand on that promise. Is there an attitude to change? 
Well, I guess so. I'm not going to even spend very much time on this because you already got it. Because if I know when I stand before God and I'm talking to God that I'm completely free of every legitimate debt that I owe him forever and ever, it's paid. Then when I go and I interact with other people, then I can choose not to be that servant. It doesn't make the world just this happy place that's full of lollipops and sunshine and and pretty flowers. But it changes my attitude to all the ugliness that there's there. The very same attitude that Christ had. He could have legitimately rode in on that donkey into Jerusalem while they were all shouting his praises and said, you know what, y'all go to hell. And been completely just saying that. But what did he do? He wept over them because he knew that they were going to reject him before it even happened. He cries over them because he knows that he's not come to send them all to hell. He's come to provide the only way not to get there. And that's in us. And that's going to revolutionize our attitude constantly, 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 constantly. Because people will do things that will cause them to be indebted to us. But we can have the attitude that Jesus had. We don't have to skip that it was wrong. He flipped over the tables, people. He didn't skip over and says, well, you're all forgiven. You just keep on doing what you're doing. No, he's serious. Throw the tables over. Let them know. But he still shed his blood to pay for even that sin. That's going to change my attitude. Is there a command to obey? Again, do I have to spend a lot of time on it? The command is simply this, just in case. Don't you hate it when you're watching a movie and the script writers think that they haven't done a good enough job? Television show, Michelle and I, it's a joke with Michelle and I. You know, we'll be watching a movie or a television show and then that line will come. And you know that that line is written for all those people that weren't paying attention. You know what I'm talking about? You know, you're like, really? You had to put that in here because you think that we're that dumb? This movie was that boring? Or this show was that esoteric that we didn't get that, you know, the reason why so-and-so murdered so-and-so is because they did such-and-such? And so you had to spell it out for me? We've been watching the show! So... Here it is. Think you didn't know. Here's the command. You, I, must forgive. Not an option. Not an option. It's not an advisement. It's not something that would be helpful if you choose to do it. It's a requirement. From our Lord, who if he's the Lord, We have to do it. That's the command. Is there an example to follow? Hmm. Doggone. It would be nice if there wasn't, right? Because then we could say, well, I don't know what that looks like, and we could be really justified in saying that. But here we have Jesus, who has just been through all of this real life, including being hungry and not being able to get something to eat. 
And yet, he stands before God, the only sinless one, the only one that says, I have nothing to be forgiven of, who chooses to forgive. And this is something that, that many years ago was introduced to me by a, a very holy individual who was really working out what it meant to be a follower of Christ. And it really resonated in my heart, and I've tried to share it as much as I possibly can, because it's true. Oftentimes, we think that Jesus is there, and so we're trying to shoot for there, and we know we're never going to get there. It's like anybody ever on, I don't know if y'all, we had this, we had to take PE in high school, which was either your favorite class or the class you hated the most. It was one or the other. And depending on your PE teacher in your particular school, sometimes they would see if they could find anybody that was gifted in track. And so track is not like track. Track is throwing stuff and jumping over stuff and, and running around in circles, you know, those kinds of things. It's track. And they, they got out that, that, that big cushion with the bar. You know what I'm talking about? They call it the high jump. That's for people that can jump high. For the rest of us, it's just humiliation, right? <laughs> yeah. Because there's no hiding that, right? I mean, you got 40-some. I, I, I told you I was in the high school class that I start off high school with. It's huge. 400 students. There's 40-some-odd students in the class. They line us up, and they put the bar pretty low. So one student after another, after another, after another, hits that bar, and everybody snickers. And the reason why they snicker is because they know they're going to have to do the same thing. And the ones that actually succeed, what do they do? They raise the bar. Because what they want to do is they want to get it high enough that that person also fails. That's the game. That's, the, you know, that's what you do in high jump. You keep on raising the bar. And so that's how we treat Jesus. You know, it's like, well, I gave it a shot, and I failed, and everybody laughed at me, and so pff, whatever. You know, I can't do that. Maybe somebody's really spiritual and they can get seven notches higher than me. And, you know, and I like, oh, man, yours incredible because you got way up there. But all we need to do is just notch that bar up one more and you'll be just as humiliated as the rest of us. You could just brag that you were notches ahead of me, right? And that's how we treat Jesus. But what does the scripture say? What does Jesus say about our relationship with him? I will not leave you. I will not abandon you. You will not be orphans. I will come to you he tells his disciples we have this language in our common what we say we invite jesus into our hearts and he lives in us we think he lives in some closet with no windows right that's that's you know, he lives in me but he, you know, i don't know where he's at because i don't don't see him and it and it just takes away the absolute power of being indwelled by the holy spirit of god Here's the kicker, and here's what got shared with me, and not near as complicated as what I just did it for you. But here's what got shared. Here's the simple truth. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if the Holy Spirit of God rests in you, you are able to do the things that he said and did because he's in you and his power. The very same power is in you. And Jesus says this in the gospel over and over again. And it's very uncomfortable. 
Because we, we really don't want that. We want to just be able to get in line and be like eight or nine, go down, hop over the bar, get the bar stuck in the backside of ours, and then, you know, like jump up and make a goofy thing. And it's like, well, I'm just like everybody else. We don't want to have the responsibility of being incredibly wounded, inexplicably wrecked by somebody else's terrible decisions, and be able to say, you're forgiven because there's something wrong with that if Christ isn't in us but if he is then we not only can say that we must say that now I know that there's persons here have been incredibly wounded by the acts of other people far beyond even the ability to express and again I want to remind you just like that lawnmower is still on my record. The debt is paid. I'm not asking you to say, okay, well, that's just like, it never happened. Because it did happen. And I think that's one of the things, some of the tools Satan uses against us to keep us from genuinely forgiving those who've wrecked our lives. You have to forget this, and you can never forgive them unless you could forget it. And we know beyond a shadow of a doubt, until we're not able to remember our own name, we're going to remember that. Because it was horrid. Are you following? But that debt, although it is remembered, it is wiped out. Because it was paid. Not by me, but by Christ. Is there a prayer to pray? Yup. Lord, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for wiping out the debt that I have that is so big that I cannot put my mind around it. So big that it would put me in eternity apart from you. So big. So big. And because you've done that for me, that thing that my child did that really cut me to the bone that thing that my spouse did that really messed us up that thing that my coworker did that kept me from receiving the joy of something i worked for for months and months or maybe even years or years that thing that thing that thing that thing that thing all legitimate things lord they're forgiven by you through me don't owe me anymore that's a big prayer is there an error to avoid i promised you i was going to get to this here's the error and this is my error i'm just sharing this with you this may not be your error but this is my error those that know me know that i'm a very emotionally controlled person 99 of the time uh, the ceo of my company found out that other one percent this week um terrible just so embarrassed but he just kept on poking 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 it's like dude i've had enough of you poking me stop it except for i did it in front of like lots of other senior managers so i'm, I'm blushing now even um we made up he actually told me he still loved me so that's that's always good um what i tend to do is rather than releasing a debt I just become ambivalent to it. I don't care. 
You know, I emotionally detach from it. It no longer has any hold over me, not because it's not there, but because I'm not connected to it anymore. For those of you that are really having a hard time conceptualizing this, let me just make it real simple. If a light's on in your house, and it's one of those lights that is plugged into the wall, you just go and unplug the light from the wall, and what happens? The light goes off, right? Does the light still exist in the room? The lamp? The light's not there, but is the lamp still there? Yes. So it's still there. It's physically present. It's just not any connected to the power anymore. That's what I do. It's like, it's still there. You still owe me, but I'm not emotionally connected anymore, so I'm cut off. That's an error to avoid. Maybe you've got your own way of not forgiving, but getting over it kind of a thing. And that's the error to avoid. When you, and, and how do I know when I've done that versus when I've really forgiven somebody? Let, let, let me share with you how I know. At the end of Romans, and if you have your Bibles still open, I encourage you to find this um, and dog ear it and you know, put a stamp on it, highlight it, whatever you do to, to, to remember Romans 12, 18 says, it's possible so far as it depends on you. Never be at peace with all, or no. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge. Leave that to the wrath of God. That's right. Leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will see burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is my litmus test, if I know. So what I can say is the debt is there, there's a record of it, but even if you've never sought even one little bit of repentance in your life, what I can do is treat you like an enemy. And some of you are really going to like this, and some of you are going to think, this is really, this guy's not right. But that's okay, it's in the Bible. If your enemy is hungry, what are we supposed to do? Feed him. If he is thirsty, we're supposed to give him a water, a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. That's the part, is my favorite part of that whole verse. Okay. But in verse 21, it says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The scripture is very real, knows that there's evil that is done to us and that much of the debt that people owe us is because they have done evil to us. But I know that they're forgiven when I can respond with good. Even if I have to conceptualize that that good is fiery coals getting dumped on their head, I can still genuinely do that. Some of you are back in my corner. So whatever error is your particular error, I've confessed mine. Use that end of Romans 12 to say, listen, I know that they're genuinely, genuinely forgiven because I can actively overcome the evil that is their debt with the good that is in me because of Christ. Is there a truth to believe? Again, very obvious in the passage. I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on it. That we are forgiven, we have been forgiven, and we will be forgiven. That's the truth to believe.
If that ever changes, then this whole system does not work. It does not work. If there's ever a place to where we can get to in God's economy that it's impossible for him to forgive us, then it does not work. Now, I want to be very clear. There are those who choose not to receive God's forgiveness. And there are those that are going to spend eternity apart from him. Period. So, but that isn't a statement that God was unable to forgive. Is there something to praise God for? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. One of the things that I have spent time every time that I meet with the leaders of this congregation that we do is we, we pray through this peacemaker's prayer. And so I want to end our time together praying this prayer in your presence as well. I can honestly say I've never prayed through this prayer and not had God stir in my heart. I'm not a one into written prayers. In fact, I kind of think that they're weird. And that's being nice about it. But there's something about the confessions in this text that every time I pray it aloud, I'm talking to God simultaneously with what I'm, what I'm praying. Because this is all about moving who I am into alignment with Jesus Christ. And I know that whenever I pray this, that there's something, some paragraph in here that the Holy Spirit's going to stir me and say and draw me into alignment in Christ because I'm out of alignment. So I'm going to pray this prayer. And then we're going to have a time to respond. And then I, I, I'm, I'm going to just challenge you. You know, if you've never received the forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus, I don't care how religious you are, you know that your debt has not been paid. It can be paid right now by you receiving it. And so if you're here this morning, you've never surrendered the authority of your life to Jesus Christ. He is not your boss. He is not your hope. He is not your savior. I'm going to invite you to do it right where you sit and then come tell me about it. And let me rejoice with you and let us rejoice with you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let's be honest. We all got debts. We owe people and they owe us. So there's not a person here, even if you say, I, nobody owes me anything. What you've done is you've fallen into my error. You've cut them off. They don't owe you because they don't exist. Yes, if they're there, you'll be nice to them, blah, 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 whatever. But they still owe you. I mean, if you're really honest before God, which you have to be because he knows it anyway, right? Folk owe you. Maybe not very much. Maybe you're one of those people where the bar is very, very high and you're hopping over it because you're just forgiven on a daily basis and that's great. But those debts get piled up every day, don't they? You know, maybe it's somebody you doesn't even know. I got honked at yesterday by somebody. I mean, I was pulling out in the, in the lane. The traffic was a, ahead of us and this person thought that they should be able to go speed limit in the lane where there was no place to go. And so they took it out on me. That was not nice. That person knows me because they publicly said to everybody it was in front of me, this guy's an idiot, right? It wasn't even a beep beep. It was like one of those, you know, honk and tell you your number one as they fly by. So maybe you're there. I mean, people in your life, you're just really good for giving them. It's the people you don't know. 
hard to forgive that person. I don't even know who they are. You know what car they drive. But now's the time for you to begin that process to say, Lord, I stand before you, and this person owes me. And because you are so great that you forgave me, their debt is removed. This person owes me, and you're so great because you've forgiven me, their debt is removed. This one, this one, this one. Lord God, today I'm called to be a peacemaker, but I'm unfit for the task. By nature, I am a peace faker and a peace breaker, so I myself need help. Others ask me to understand and guide them, but my ears are dull, my eyes are dim, and I lack the wisdom that I need and that they need. But you, Lord, have all that they need, so I come to you for supply Make me fit for your purposes so that I might serve them and honor you. Cleanse me from my own sins so I will not add to their problems. Take the logs from my eyes so I can remove the specks from theirs. Fill me with your spirit so that they may benefit from your fruit. Love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Give me wisdom from above so that I might be pure and peace-loving, considerate and submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Open your word to my eyes and to my heart so that I will have a steady lamp to light our path. Strip me of my own agenda and desires so that I might look only to others' good and be absolutely worthy of their trust. Help me to model everything I teach so others can see the way. Give me humility to admit my weaknesses and confess my wrongs so others might do the same. Draw me again and again into prayer where you can strengthen and correct me. Make me submissive. Help me to show that I myself am under authority. Help me to treat others as I want to be treated so that they may see the essence of your law. Make me creative, versatile, and adaptable so I can adjust to the surprises ahead. Help me to accept others as you have accepted me and thus bring praise to your name. Give me faith and perseverance so that I will not doubt your provision or abandon your principles even when others fight against them. Grant me the gift of encouragement to give others hope and to help them believe that our labor is not in vain. Help me to model your forgiveness so relationships are healed and your gospels revealed. Grant me discernment so that I may read the deep waters of others' hearts, sort fiction from fact, and know when it's time to act. Give me boldness and courage tempered with kindness to confront others in love so they might see their errors and find their way back to you. Help me to prepare thoroughly and not to presume upon your grace. Make me just and fair, so that even if people disagree with my counsel, they will believe that I treated them well. In short, Father, please give me the spirit of Christ, so that I might walk in his steps and guide your people into the path of your peace. And all God's people said,
Would you stand as we have a time to respond?